Amen. Amen. Well, we'll dismiss our kids to children's ministry, and if you'll have a seat and open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, chapter 20. We're in Proverbs chapter 20 today, and we're going to be looking at verse 28. Proverbs 20, 28. That verse reads, Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king, and by steadfast love his throne is upheld. Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king, and by steadfast love his throne is upheld. Well, you could very easily, or at least I think so, uh, struggle. I struggled with this this week, preach three completely different but related sermons on this text. You could preach a sermon from Proverbs 20, 28 on a political perspective or coming from a political perspective. You could see that this verse has something to tell us about the nature of politics and political power. And you could also preach a sermon on this passage from a Christological perspective, uh, and you could make much of the definite article in the verse that says, the king, by steadfast love, the king is established. And you could also preach a sermon on the eschatological perspective. This verse has us kind of in the bloodline or the bloodstream of the many promises that God issues related to human government in the Bible. And so I thought I would just give you a little bit of each from each one of those perspectives. Uh, we'll start by talking about how this verse tells us something, well, it tells us a number of things. We'll pick one about uh, the political realities in human government. Uh, one of the things we see in this passage is the inherent instability of political power. This verse is, I would say, kind of a subspecies of a larger family of verses in Proverbs that more or less tell us that there will be things that look powerful and stable, but they are not powerful or stable unless they are sustained by God. So there are a lot of Proverbs and a lot of wisdom literature in that stream. Maybe one of the most um, you know, recognizable verses in that pattern would be Psalm 127. It says that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So there's this idea in wisdom literature where they pick something you might be tempted to trust in, in and of itself. I mean, there are proverbs about wealth along this line. There are proverbs about friendship, as we saw last week along this line. There are things that look glorious, that look strong, that look reliable, that are not strong or glorious or reliable if God is not upholding them and taking care of them. And that idea is presented in this verse through two words. Let me read the verse again. Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king, and by steadfast love his throne is upheld. Why does something, let's look at the word preserve. Why does something need to be preserved? Why does something need to be preserved? Well, it needs to be preserved because left to itself, it is subject to decay. Left to itself, it's subject to decay. If metal is not painted or galvanized, it will rust. Um, if wood on our back decks isn't properly treated in some way, either painted or pressure treated, it will decay. And if 
you take a piece of chicken out of the freezer and set it on the counter and leave it there for a few days and do nothing to preserve it, it will decay. So the word preserved in our text is telling us something about the nature of political power. And that is that unless some outside force preserves it, it will decay. Political power is extremely limited. It cannot last without God preserving it. Just as there are many forces in nature that work against various materials, the Bible, one of the Bible's main lessons about political power is that unless God is preserving it, it will spoil, right? And I think it's a very important lesson to understand and to take on. And then in the second half of the verse, not only do we have the word preserve in the first half of the verse, but we also see the word upheld, right? The word upheld. Well, why does something need to be upheld? The Hebrew here for the word upheld can mean strengthened or supported or established. Why does something need to be strengthened or upheld? Because it does not have sufficient power in and of itself to stay upright. And so one of the things we see in Proverbs 20:28 is that political power in and of itself cannot keep from decaying cannot keep from becoming corrupt, and it cannot stay up on its own accord. Some outside agent must stabilize political power in order to keep it from decaying or toppling over. What's the outside force? Well, in this text and in many other texts, the outside force that must keep political power from decaying or from toppling over is God himself. He must strengthen it or it will fall. He must stabilize it, or it will topple over. He must preserve it, or it will decay. In John chapter 19, we see that Jesus is arrested and brought before a political leader named Pontius Pilate. And here we find that Jesus is in absolute control. Pilate, the governor, is the one who is actually fearful. Jesus is barely giving him the time of day. And you certainly worth thinking about later is to note that Jesus is not actually submitting to him in any way that we would recognize as submission. When well, verse 9, Pilate asked Jesus, where are you from? And then the text says, but Jesus gave him no answer. And then in verse 10, Pilate says, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And then in verse 11, Jesus tells us what I've just been saying. He says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you. Political power simply exists for any length of time because God has determined to preserve it and to keep it from toppling over. If God did not give Pilate authority, he would have no authority. Indeed, Sometime after the crucifixion of Jesus, Pilate falls into disfavor with one of the Caesars. I believe it was the Caesar. And uh, he is essentially forced to kill himself as a punishment for his own disfavor. Now, this is all interesting to know if you are planning on becoming a king. Anyone here planning on becoming a king? If so, the, the application of the text is relatively straightforward. Do not take your power for granted. It comes from God, and it will only be sustained as long as God would have it to be sustained. Therefore, trust in the Lord and give steadfast love to the Lord so that he will preserve your power 
and keep it from toppling over. But for the rest of us who are not planning on being a king anytime soon, what's the application? Well, one application of this idea is simply this. Do not trust in leaders who do not trust in God. Do not trust in leaders who do not trust in God. Do not fear leaders who do not fear God. Do not trust in leaders who do not trust in God. Do not fear leaders who do not fear God. Now, I think a wonderful litmus test for whether a leader would be trustworthy is to hear them, uh, to watch them respond to that statement that I just made. See, if George Washington were in our church today or Dwight D. Eisenhower or Ronald Reagan, and I said, do not trust leaders who do not trust in God, they would be like, amen, right? A reasonable leader would agree with that statement and be worthy of some trust, some trust, uh, simply by their agreement. But the more a, a leader would find what I just said to be objectionable, the more objectionable and untrustworthy that leader actually is. So I want to be super clear about this. I think it's very important. I think it's a lesson we have to take away. When the Bible tells you not to trust in a leader who does not trust in God, that need not be as personal as it sounds. It could simply be taken this way. God could say, do not trust in a leader who does not trust in me in the same way you would not trust in an old deck that had not been pressure treated with wood. You see, things are the most dangerous when they're decaying and rotting, when you can't see the decay and rot. And so you have to actually think about the piece of chicken on the counter and say, it looks fine, but is it? Not if it's not being preserved. It's not fine. It's not safe. Things that look trustworthy, and this is the idea of this stream of Proverbs, things that look trustworthy but are not trustworthy are the most dangerous of all the not trustworthy things. And so one of the things we really should understand is, is that we shouldn't trust leaders who do not trust God any more than we would trust a piece of chicken that had not been preserved or any more than we would trust a deck that had not built properly. It's not so much a personal thing. It's not so much personally antagonistic as it simply is wise. Don't put your weight on stuff that isn't stable and don't eat stuff that hasn't been preserved. The idea that that statement would be uh, somehow uh, misconstrued as anything close to Christian nationalism or whatever you're, by the way, I'm not a Christian nationalist. I'm a global nationalist or I'm a, I'm a Christian globalist. I want all the countries to obey Jesus. Um, so I'll just, I'll just make everybody upset, you know, uh, not just, not just Americans. But, but this idea that you would say at the beginning of say some monumental event that occurs in human history, uh, a one-off event, let's say some kind of global pandemic, I don't trust the government. That, that is not conspiratorial. By the way, I, I heard a great joke. Uh, hopefully it picks up quickly. Um, I'm a conspiracy theorist. My pronouns are they and them. So we shouldn't trust something that God isn't holding together because it's not going to hold together. And we shouldn't fear something that God isn't preserving or upholding because it has no power in and of itself. Our position should be the same as Christ's. We are the ones who have the firm ground. We are standing on a kingdom that cannot be shaken, on the rock of ages. And all those who are not are the ones who are in danger. Many, many, many years ago, a disciple of John, the Apostle John, a man named Polycarp, was arrested because he refused to offer incense to Caesar. Now, they didn't need him to renounce Jesus. They just needed to add Caesar to his pantheon. 
They didn't even need Caesar to be number one. They just needed Caesar in Polycarp's mix. So like you can keep Jesus, but you also have to trust in and fear the, govern, the Caesar. So we need you to offer a little incense as worship to the Caesar. And they said, and if you don't, we'll offer your body as incense to the Caesar. We'll be burned at the stake. And Polycarp responds, why should I be afraid of a fire that lasts only a moment? You should be afraid of the fire that lasts forever. We don't trust people, people. We don't trust leaders. It's not an anti-government statement. We don't trust people who don't trust God. And we don't fear people who don't fear God. It is those people who should be afraid. And I suppose that looking back on COVID, I wish, I, th- I suppose that we would all say, yeah, I made some mistakes. I got some things wrong. But I, want to, I, want to, with, I, I don't want to go through a bullet list of all the things I'm not going to do that. Someone asked me, how did you wind up on the perspective you wound up on in early January 2020? It's like this. I don't trust people who don't trust God. See, we all made mistakes during COVID, but no one is looking back now saying, man, I really wish I had trusted the government more. And if you had just understood this one biblical principle, and if you did understand this one biblical principle and applied it, you wound up more right than wrong. And if you understood that governments who do not fear God should not be feared and applied that, you wound up more right than wrong. And so that's one of the political perspectives we see in this text. Governments, political powers, are completely dependent for their stability upon God. And if they are not trusting in God, we should not trust in them. I don't care what letter is behind their name. I don't care what convention they speak at. If they don't trust God, I'm not trusting them. And if they don't fear God and they want to bully me, I'm not fearing them. I'm just not going to do it. Why? Because they're the rotting piece of chicken. They're the deck that's going to fall. Not the church. So that's the political take. They get less hot over time. Well, I'm not sure that's true, actually. So that's the political interpretation, and you could preach a whole sermon on that kind of thing. Um, the, number, the number two interpretation I suggested was the Christological. You know, the way you would read the, the Christological interpretation of Proverbs twenty twenty eight is simply this. Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king, right? The king. So I've just told you who not to trust. Let me tell you who to trust. Trust the king, the one king, course, Jesus is described as a king over and over again in both the Old and New Testament. When the angel Gabriel informed Mary that she would give birth to a son, he tells her, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, that's a direct quote from Isaiah 9. So both the Old and New Testament speak frequently about the kingship of Jesus. And the Old Testament is just chocked full of these kinds of Christ the King promises. In Daniel chapter 7, it says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, 
nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His food is safe to eat. His structures will hold your weight. His kingdom is a dominion, an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away. And his kingdom one, uh, is one that shall not be destroyed. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul speaks of Jesus making the good confession. The good confession before Pontius Pilate. I charge you in the presence of God, Paul writes, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. What was the good confession? The good confession was Pilate says, they say you're a king, and Jesus said, you have said it. The good confession is that Jesus is indeed a king. And the scriptures go further. They say that not only is Jesus a king, but he is actually the king. At least three times in the New Testament, the phrase king of kings is used to describe Jesus. Once in the text I just read in 1 Timothy 6, twice in Revelation. And I think that it's very important that we understand what John, the apostle, and what Paul, the apostle, were thinking of when they used the phrase king of kings to refer to Jesus. Because that is not an invented phrase. It's a phrase that existed for a very long time, not only in Jewish life, but actually much more so amongst the nations. So what does the phrase king of king means? Because when Paul is using it, when John is using it, they actually know it's about its usage throughout all of antiquity up to that point. Well, let me see if I can explain it this way. Throughout the history of the world, various empires... Um, and I'm calling an empire something that's bigger than just one kingdom. I think maybe you can think of an empire as a thing that it's a kingdom, but it's, it swallows up many other kingdoms, okay, something like that. Throughout history, there would be these empires, the rise of these kingdom of kingdoms. And over those kingdom of kingdoms, there would be someone that I always think of as like a super king. And the super king when he would take over or annex a particular country, would prefer, all things being equal, to keep the king in that country on the throne. This is important. I think we sometimes think that like, uh, if you're Caesar and you're invading all of these countries, then you would just depose the king of the country you in invaded and then put someone on the throne of your own picking. They would prefer not to do that. The whole Bible, if you could go back if you wanted to and listen to my series on covenant theology, the whole Bible is written in a format called a suzerain treaty, which is essentially what I'm talking about here. Um, these massive kings would write what they, what, what they would call, what we would call a treaty or a covenant to one of these lower kings. And do you remember anything about that? They would say, this is my name, this is what I've done for you, and this is how you should respond. And so the preference in that kind of setup, if you're Caesar, is to actually leave the king and say Great Britain in place. Only as long as he swears allegiance to you, you've got everything you're looking for. Because you need rule of law to remain in Britain so that taxes can be sent back and so on and so forth. And so the preference of these super kings, Nebuchadnezzar is called a king of kings in the Old Testament, 
Artaxerxes is called a king of kings in the Old Testament. And these are kingdoms that swallowed kingdoms. These were empires. And essentially, these king of kings would be the top of a political order with all the subordinate political leaders swearing allegiance to this one king of kings. And so when Paul and John use the phrase king of kings, they're thinking of that. And of course, during their time, there was a king of kings, and his name was Caesar. And he did the very thing I've been describing. In, in a course of preference, all things being equal, he would want the king of some country that he now subsumed to remain intact and hope that that king, uh, so long as that king would swear allegiance up the chain to his kingdom. Why does this matter? Well, just think of how politically divisive the phrase king of kings would have been to a Roman, ascribing Jesus as the king of kings. And I imagine there's someone in an Ephesian church somewhere saying, we don't talk about politics in this church. It's like, I, I, I can't avoid it. Because there is no square inch of human domain over which Jesus Christ does not cry, mine. And so this idea of king of kings, that Jesus is the king and he is the king of kings, I think allows us to pivot into this next section, which is the eschatological section. I think I've painted, in some respects, a very dim picture in the first point, the political point. Because I've said, if a leader doesn't trust in God, you can't trust in them. And you look around and you're like, well, it looks like I ain't going to be trusting for a while. And then I say, but you can trust in Jesus. You're like, that's awesome. Is Jesus planning on running in 2024? <laughs> Do you see the gap? You see the gap? There's a vacancy there between God's transcendent rule and the governing of our ordinary lives. And I want to put forth to you today that the reason for that gap is because God is going to fill it with real political leaders in, in the future who do trust in God and do fear God. That that's the way our history is flowing. Our history is flowing toward a time, a season, when real political leaders of real countries really love or trust or submit in Jesus. And that would be beautiful. That would be wonderful because right now, when someone's not trusting, when a ruler isn't trusting in God, I listed three things I was thinking about throughout the scriptures. When a ruler's not trusting God, they do one of three things, or maybe all three things. Some rulers who do not trust in God become violent as a means of consolidating their power. So there you have Pharaoh and Herod as examples. And some kings who do not trust in God just wind up being foolish and inept. And there are a number of instances where kingdoms are turned over, not for any malevolence, but just because they were dumb kings. They just weren't wise. What's the very first thing Solomon prays and asks of the Lord when God says, you're king now, Solomon. What do you want from me? He's like, wisdom. I have no idea what I'm doing. Well, that's a person you can trust. That's the person you can trust, is the person who asks God for wisdom and says, I have no idea what I'm doing. And there's a third kind of abuse 
amongst kings, and those are the ones who become sort of fascist Mr. Rogerses, where they essentially become, they attempt to become God. They, be, they attempt to become benevolent gods. And this is a very concerning thing as well. C.S. Lewis wrote in God in the Dock, of all tyrannies, a tyranny exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It may be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. Did you hear that? It may be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated, but those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own consciences. And so it's not hard for me, or it's not hard, shouldn't be hard for you to look out into the current political reality and say, boy, I'm so glad that Jesus is king, whatever that really means. But I sure wish that this world had people who, when they panicked about consolidating power, did not resort to violence. I sure wish this world had leaders who, when, when, when they were given the task of leadership, were humble and sought out the wisdom of God. And I sure wish this world had leaders who understood they were not God and not charged with inserting positive good into my life. Just leave me alone and let God be my God. How about that? And I want to suggest to you that these two points we've established so far, the, the realities of political authority as we see it today, and the reality of Christ's kingship, not only as king, but king of kings, and that meant a very specific thing to the people who wrote about it, that these two things come together in this third point, which is the point I said was an eschatological point. Now, you might ask yourself, well, what is eschatology? What is eschatological? It just means the final plan. The word just means the way it's all supposed to wrap up. It means the last chapter of the book. And if you have been filled with fear about the last chapter of the book, I will just tell you point blank, you shouldn't be afraid. No matter what you believe, no matter what you've been taught about eschatology, for the Christian it really is, and we all lived happily ever after. But I want to point you to, because we're talking about kingship, I want to point you to a number of promises we see in God's word that seem to suggest, in I think rather clear ways, that there will be, and there already has been, a movement where God in his kingship, where Christ in his kingship begins to affect the way that earthly kings rule and reign, even today. Uh, first, I want to establish some credentials by saying there was a time when all of the most influential, well, not all, a significant number, probably the majority of the most influential, by influential, mean I, I, uh, meaning they accomplished things. They accomplished things. Like, they didn't just talk. They didn't just write books. They changed the world. Those kinds of theological leaders, they used to exist. Uh, they were more common at one point. And many of them, if not the majority, believed in what I'm trying to describe to you today. That the kingship of Jesus will, in some ways, begin to influence the kings of this world. And that over time, this world will become more and more a place that is established by steadfast love. Thomas Brooks said... There will come a time when in this world holiness shall be more general and more imminent than ever it hath been since Adam's fall in paradise. John Owen writes, Though our persons fall, our cause 
shall be as truly, certainly, and infallibly victorious as that Christ sits at the right hand of God. The gospel shall be victorious. This greatly comforts and refreshes me. John Calvin, speaking in his commentary on the book of Micah, the text I read to open the service, says, Micah proclaims how all the world will be brought to God at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This reunification has already begun and is taking place now and will continue until the end of the world. Jesus Christ has been designated the Lord, not simply of one corner of the world, but of all nations, since our Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom has hardly begun, saying this uh, about 1,500 years after Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised. Since our Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom has hardly begun, it is necessary for it to be implemented little by little until it achieves its full perfection. A great problem that you have and I have in our lives and our souls is we have no capacity for patience that extends beyond our own lifetime and vision that extends beyond our lifetime. But one great church historian once wrote about this idea that Calvin's putting forth. Christians live in the light of eternity and can therefore afford to be patient. We've got to stop reading the headlines into the Bible and start reading the Bible into the headlines. So why did these men, these men who accomplished what could be only described as massive leaps forward in political goodness, because that's what they did. They transformed the political world for the better. We are beneficiaries of their hope. We are beneficiaries of their faith. How could they believe such things? Is it possible they knew the Bible better than we do? Is it possible that they were spared from reading one left-behind novel after another, and allowing that to form our theology, but rather went to the Word of God for their understanding of how the last chapter of God's great story ends. I think that's what's going on. I think that what they saw is they saw the Scriptures. They saw the Scriptures. Proverbs, uh, Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Isaiah 2.2 It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. There are many of these promises, and you're not done hearing them. You're going to get a bunch more. But the idea seems to us entirely strange, that being that not only will people believe in Jesus, but also people in charge of things will believe in Jesus. Does that seem that controversial, really? If so, do we have a gospel defect? We'll get to that in a moment. Isaiah 60, 1 through 3, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory shall be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and the kings and kings to the brightness of your rising. 
Isaiah 60, 10. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, and their kings led in procession. Isaiah 61, 11, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Isaiah 62, 2, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. And when this happens... We will have kings who fulfill human kings, human rulers, human political leaders. We will have people that fit into our verse. Proverbs 20, verse 28. Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king, and by steadfast love his throne is upheld. There will be, if this happens, if we're reading the text correctly, there will be many kings for whom this can be said. Now, again, I know all of this runs in contradiction with what most of us have been taught about the future because we are mostly pessimistic about the future. And you might hear all of these great predictions in Isaiah and think, well, Chris, I think that sounds like heaven. Maybe. If so, what an interesting heaven. A heaven with nations and people building things a heaven with politics, a heaven with kings. Maybe it's talking about heaven. You would need to do something with Isaiah 65, 20, though, which says, no more shall there be in it, with an, be, be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days, for the young man shall die a 100 years old, and the sinner a 100 years shall be accursed. Do people die in heaven? Or maybe these prophecies are actually simply fulfilling the entire pattern of the Bible, which is the overking establishing treaties, covenants, agreements with lesser kings, and the glory of the Lord covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. So that's my best understanding of the future. If it's not yours, that's okay. Here's what I would encourage. You can walk and chew gum at the same time. You could hold this as the other possibility for your current projections of doom and gloom. You might say, Chris, there's no way any of this could ever happen. And I would say, well, not with that attitude. <laughs> Until then, I think the application is relatively simple. Trust Jesus. Don't trust rulers who don't trust Jesus. Don't fear rulers who don't fear Jesus. But I want to encourage you in two particular ways that pride may manifest itself here. Uh, it, first is this. Whenever God's sovereignty is introduced over a subject, the prideful heart says, then they, the prideful heart becomes a fatalist and a determinist. So when God's sovereignty is discussed over salvation, that he alone saves, and it is by God's will that men are saved, the prideful heart will respond to that by saying, well, then I guess we don't need to do evangelism. 
And when God's sovereignty is proclaimed over sanctification and it says God alone will finish the work he began in you and it is him who wills and works in you, the prideful heart will say, well, then I guess I don't need the spiritual disciplines. Because the prideful heart only has two categories. This is the narcissistic poles. Either I'm all of it or I'm none of it. Either the world's totally about me or I'm nobody. This is the bipolar despair of the narcissistic personality. It's one of those two things. You just can't be content being an average dude, doing average work, part of a thing that is bigger than you, building something momentous. And this is why, this is why there's been such an attractiveness to this pessimistic eschatology. It's a byproduct of a narcissistic idea that we have to be the generation that is the generation. Rather than, nope, you're just a dude, you're just a gal. Love God, make some babies and die forgotten. Until step after step, for many, many years, we live in the light of eternity and Jesus does what he promised. So one thing to be on the watch out is some kind of political determinism it says, well, Romans 13 says that God appoints all those who rule. Uh, John 19 says that no one has authority apart from God. See, I'm introducing God's sovereignty into a subject. And what does your heart do? The prideful heart will pull back and say, well, then it's all fixed. I don't need to do anything. You remove evangelism. The prideful heart removes evangelism when sovereignty is proclaimed over salvation. The prideful heart... Uh, reduces means and disciplines, the spiritual disciplines, when the sovereignty of sanctification is introduced. And when the sovereign, God's sovereignty over politics is introduced, the prideful heart says, well, then I, there's nothing I can do. It's just not how faithful people respond to the truth of God's sovereignty on any subject. So watch out for that. Actively, here's what we know. Psalm 2 gives us what we should pray and what we should preach to the kings of this age. Psalm 2, verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I don't need to be a shrill Westboro guy to encourage a king to trust in Jesus because blessed are those who take refuge in him. I can call a king to trust in Jesus because then I get to trust a little bit more in him, but more than that because blessed are all those who take refuge in him. I've been given clear, uh, a clear talking point in Psalm 2, and that is simply this. Be warned, be wise, be blessed. I know how to talk politics now. Psalm 2 gives me that. And the rest of the Bible gives me hope that God will, over time, advance his kingdom. Now, another qualifier I should probably make, not that it couldn't just be ripped entirely out of the context of the sermon, but God doesn't need the sword. He has the sword of the Spirit. He doesn't, when, when people that are not trusting in God and, use their, and, and worshiping their power, hear such talk of Jesus taking over anything. When they hear Christians talk about Jesus taking over everything, well, these are people of the sword. 
These are people of coercion and manipulation. They don't trust in God to do things. And so when they hear this talk of the king of kings overwhelming all the other kings, they assume some kind of militant, some kind of manipulative, some kind of terrible action. No, he'll just, he'll just love you and win your heart and cause you like the rest of us to be broken over the grace of God. That's the way he wins things. It just breaks our hearts. He just visits us. And you know what? This happens to everybody, not just, not just average people, important people too. It visits us in our bedroom one night and says, are you ready to stop your striving and stop your, your manipulation of the world and trying to control everything? And are you just ready to trust in me? As we think about communion, I think that I would make one further point related to that. I want to caution you. If you are pessimistic about the possibility of God saving the political leaders of this world, I would suggest that that may very well be pride. And here's why I would say that. If you dig around in the underlying assumptions at work in someone who is a political pessimist or a cultural pessimist, I think what you often find is someone who considers their, loss, their lostness to be less bad than the lostness of the president or the lostness of the celebrity or the lostness of the athlete or the lostness of the king. And if that's the underlying thing going on in your heart, you don't understand the gospel. It's not as if in order to save you from your spiritual death, Jesus has to, had, had, had to use less miracle dust to wake you up. And it's not as if he doesn't have unlimited miracle dust. So if you are pessimistic about the possibility that God could actually change people in important positions, it's very possible that what's going on there is some sense of spiritual elitism where you think you are or were less bad, less stubborn than the people in some political office. The foundation of a pessimism could just be a kind of pride that thinks Jesus' miracles only go so far. And I'm just not as bad off, and I wasn't as bad off as these people or this world is. That's not what the Bible teaches. Colossians 1, 13 through 14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. We were in the system. You were part of the problem. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. As you come to this table in a moment, I would really love it if you said, Lord, in saving me, in saving me, you did the hardest thing there 
ever could be to do. In saving me, you did the hardest thing there ever could be. Why would I doubt that you couldn't do that over and over and over again until kingdom come? Colossians 1 continues, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let none of us leave this room doubting his ability to reconcile all things in heaven and earth through the peace he has established by the blood of his cross. Lord God, we pray as we enter this time of observing your table that you would fill us with fresh faith and help us to see how great a God and how great a salvation are represented before us in the bread and the wine. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.